and welcome to this episode of The Art and Design of Sci-Fi and Fantasy, Mystery and Horror. In this episode, I speak with Dr. Ava Horn, who's written a book on how catastrophe has been um, imagined and, des- and described uh, in literature and movies, uh, and she covers you know, a few hundred years. She looks at classical writings and, and uh, more modern takes on that. She looks at how science has been included in writings of catastrophe, how it's been presented, uh, the dangers and, and pitfalls of science, and she looks at how the future is presented, the, pu- the past, uh, the relationship between the past and the future. Uh, so we cover a, a wide range of, of interesting subjects. Uh, a lot of it revolves around climate change also and financial catastrophe, how those two things have affected people's views on catastrophe and uh, how to approach it. So thank you and enjoy. I'm speaking with Dr. Ava Horn, author of The Future as Catastrophe, Imagining Disaster in the Modern Age. Thank you for speaking with me. Um, So first, tell me, how did you get into studying and writing on this subject? I think this was a very specific biographical moment. I had just finished my previous book, which is on political secrecy, and then that was... 2008 I was looking for a new topic and the financial crisis happened and I felt that we were with losing parts of our fortune many people losing their jobs losing their houses losing what they had put aside for the future I felt that our relation to the future was changing profoundly and this was highlighted oh this was not just done by the by the financial crisis, but there was a predicament of our, our of of our current relation to the future that was highlighted by the financial crisis in the sense that we could see that no matter what we do, uh, no matter how we try to prevent negative ne- negative events or how we try to prepare for our retirement and so on, we cannot really prepare for a disastrous future. And that made me interested in the cultural history of the ways in which we uh, relate to the future and especially to disastrous futures. Mm-hmm. And since uh, your point of view, I, I guess, first is from, since you're a European professor, you saw that in Europe, but I guess you also saw this um I guess more in the Western world at large? Yes. The book, the material of the book is taken both from Europe and from the United States. There are novels, films from American culture in it. There's a lot of European material there. Um, But I don't believe that, um, I mean, people in Asia or Africa in different degrees were affected by the financial crisis and went through their own crisis before that. So I think it would be wrong to cast this as a purely sort of Western problem. Okay. Yeah. It's a problem of modernity in a certain way. It's a problem of, of modern societies and the ways they try to prepare for undesirable futures by forms of um, yeah, forecasting, uh, prevention, prophylactic measures, and so on. 
but don't always manage to thwart undesirable futures. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about the book. What's the uh, main theme of the book? Well, the main theme is um, is catastrophe. Uh, the function the imagined catastrophe or what I call the catastrophic imaginary has had for um, yeah for modern societies but modern in the sense means starting basically from the end of the 18th century on um, how do we imagine catastrophe and what do we see in a catastrophic event? Very often catastrophic events are seen as the revelation of some kind of underlying truth of society. We see something that usually in everyday life is hidden, but when disaster strikes, all of a sudden something is revealed. For instance, the fragility of our social bonds. All of a sudden, our neighbors don't help us but try to steal our food or something like that. Or the, the reverse, we see that people are very helpful and friendly and altruistic even though we would have never expected it from them. Mm-hmm. Depending on the type of, of narrative, depending on the type of fiction that you look at. Mm-hmm. Now, reading a description of the book, I guess you differentiate between sudden catastrophe and sort of a slow, a slow creep. I guess you say that currently now you see more of the slow creep fears. Yes, um, the classic disaster, as you said, in modernity, starting really from the 18th century, like the earthquake of Lisbon, or fictional disasters like the eclipse of the sun in Lord Byron's poem Darkness, we have a sudden disaster striking. That's the classical type. What we have today are disasters that we have a hard time perceiving, such as climate change or uh, species loss, uh, ecological disasters that are almost invisible, we sometimes see symptoms or we try to see symptoms such as a hurricane as a symptom of climate change. But basically, uh, a a slow creeping disaster uh, like climate change is what I call a catastrophe without event. It does not come in the form of a big bang, but rather as the very slow and imperceptible process. Mm -hmm. What do you attribute to that change in in how it's um, looked at, catastrophe? Well, it's the nature of the problems or the current societies are facing. We are facing structural problems that are by their very complex nature very hard to cast as a specific Big Bang type of event. Think of the Cold War. In the Cold War, everybody was fearing that there would be a nuclear strike. A nuclear strike is an event of sorts, right? And so you can imagine what would happen, and you have films like The Day After, where you, you, in a very naturalistic manner, it is shown what would happen 
if a nuclear strike hits a small town somewhere in rural America. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now, with climate change, it's a totally different type of problem. So we are already having a lot of problems to even imagine possible scenarios of climate change. Now, fiction is starting to do that, like huge droughts or water wars and whatnot, but it might as well be too much rain, hurricane, mm-hmm. floods. We do not really know what the type of problem is that we will have in the future. And also, I think that was the financial crisis in a certain way with its many different um, types of small private individual disasters was this type of catastrophe. Yes, it was an event and we can give it a specific date, but in a certain way it played out in so many different ways that we can't say "Hmm, this was a big bang and these were the consequences and we should have done this and that to prevent it. But the problems we're facing are too complex to assign a specific graspable scenario. Not only what we have are many scenarios. It could be this, it could be that. So were you able to consider uh, the effects of uh, the change in religious demographics and also social media, two different things, obviously, you know, were you able to look at those um, to see how they affected people's attitudes towards catastrophe? I was not really looking at current media. I was looking at fictions. Mm-hmm. Um, that means uh, film, literature, but also the metaphors, the imagery we use mm-hmm. to um, speak about out or to uh, conceive of future catastrophes. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, um, for instance, if you think of rather complex problems like long-term effects of certain substances, uh, such as asbestos, for instance, it's very hard to give this type of problem a specific image so we have to tell stories i was looking at this type of stories you know asbestos has a long story of for a hundred years a hundred years since they started using it people knew that it was very very damaging to the the health of the people who were working with it Mm -hmm. only a hundred years later they phase it out the first reports are from 1898 and they phase it out in the 1990s Um, the question is how do we conceive of a problem like this a kind of invisible effect that we have a hard time grasping we have to tell stories so there's a book on asbestos that narrates the story seen from the end and this is what you have in many, many catastrophes. You have a narrative that tells a past from a viewpoint in the future. And these types of narratives were what I was interested in. You find them in literature, but you find them in the newspaper. You find them in politicians' speeches. You find them in the in the metaphors we use to talk about how we provide for our retirement and this and that. We take a point of view in the future say once this and that will happen once i am old 
I will have to have done this and that now in mm. the present. Hmm. Where are some of the major works that uh, you examine in this book? Maybe the whole project <laughs> revolves centrally about two around two works of fiction that have an uncannily similar scenario. One is a very old poem by Lord Byron, Darkness from 1816. Uh, it's a poem about the sun suddenly eclipsing and you would think okay this has a lot to do with apocalyptic imaginary religion you know the ultimate judgment and so on but when you look take a closer look at the text um, you see that this text is not at all um, full of religious metaphors. On the contrary, it's an entirely secular scenario that looks at how humans behave. And they behave in a very ugly way. They start fighting each other for food, uh, for for the last sources of light, and so on. And eventually everybody all the humans kill everybody else um, because they're so afraid of one another and, um, you know, the, the, the last two survivors kill each other out of fear of each other. That is Lord Byron. Byron has a look at humans under strain, under stress. He says, if, if put under severe stress, the human being will be like a beast, worse than an animal. Now you take 200 years, fast forward, and you look at a novel uh, uh, like Cormac McCarthy's The Road, and you have almost the exact same scenario. You have a kind of nuclear winter scenario where nothing grows, so there is nothing to eat, and there's this man with his child walking on foot through the United States trying to reach the coast and they're being hunted down by cannibals. So in a certain way, these two disaster scenarios in their uncanny similarity cast a light on the human being under stress. And it's a very dark glance at human nature. Mm -hmm. And also, I guess you look at some films as well that reflect this. Yes, of course, you have currently almost every other week, you have some kind of disaster blockbuster coming out. And, and very often you have social chaos, dystopias, um, everybody fighting each other or some being saved in in some kind of uh, safe haven, others suffering. So these are these catastrophe scenarios are very often in a in a um, in, yeah, oh, in a, in a hidden way. I think they revolve not so much about how humans react to uh, disaster, but uh, they revolve around problems of social uh, inequality. Mm -hmm. So you have this very, very drastic difference between those who are out in a in a chaotic, horrible, uh, you know, de desert-like uh, type of society, and then you have these uh, segregated uh, communities, such as in Elysium, for instance. You know, you, this is a film that is not so much about disaster, but it on on the surface it looks like a post 
catastrophic society, but actually I think it's a, it's an allegory of uh, current forms of inequality. Mm-hmm. So the book description mentions 12 Monkeys and Minority Report, and it makes me wonder how much is authoritarianism, the dangers of it, wrapped up in the whole cat- catastrophe concern? Well, these two films, I don't think they really are about authoritarianism. Sometimes, in certain forms of social chaos scenarios, you would think, huh, we need an authoritarian figure to to bring order back to this uh, disaster. Um, However, even if a film like uh, Minority Report uh, revolves around the possibility to forecast any kind of major crime and prevent it before it even happens, and you would think this is a very authoritarian fantasy of intervention into, you know, social, socially undesirable uh, uh, behavior, mm-hmm. it is m- rather about the media and the possibilities of forecasting. What does it mean to know the future and when you know the, if you know the future, Mm -hmm. what do you do then? In a certain way, I believe the best story is about, uh, the the best story that uh, that deals with this problem is in a certain way the myth of Oedipus. Mm -hmm. The parents of Oedipus, when their son is born, they know that this child will bring disaster to the family. He will kill his father and marry his mother. So their problem is the problem of prevention. So what do we do now? Do we kill our child? Do we just live on and wait for for the the prophecy to happen? Um, so in a certain way, Minority Report takes up, and it, uh, the film alludes in many ways to the Oedipal uh, myth. Um, Minority picks up this problem. So what do you do if you can forecast a murder? How, you prevent it, and then what do you do with the future murderer who did not even have a chance to commit the crime in the film the the person's punished without even having had the chance to commit a crime so you know this this raises legal problems this raises problems of the veracity of the forecast is this really the true story as it's going to play out do we really understand Stand what is being said by the forecast and so on and so forth. And in a certain way, I think that Spielberg, Spielberg is, um, he's quite optimistic that in a certain way, this type of forecasting would work if you just eliminate the glitches, you know, the juridical problems that you that you put someone to jail or punish someone who hasn't had the chance to commit a crime, that there is a manipulator, this authoritarian figure, the inventor of the pre-crime that, you know, kind of manipulates the system. But in a certain way, Spielberg thinks this would, after all, be a viable option just to have more prediction in order to have more prevention. Um, Twelve Monkeys 
sees this slightly differently. Um, I think in 12 Monkeys, this is really a film about the tragic um, inability to, even when you know how the future will be, you cannot really prevent it. It's a different take. I think maybe it's even the different between an American take a la Spielberg and a rather European uh, take on for, on prevention a la Gilliam. Mm-hmm. So how do you divide up uh, the book? How do you discuss this? What are the chapters you know about in general? Oh, let me think. Yes. Okay. The first chapter is about the general idea of the last men. This is the situation back in the late 18th century when um, the modern idea of the future as catastrophe is born in, in, in a scenario that casts the end of the world as a purely secular phenomenon, not the ultimate judgment, God intervening, and then, you know, there will be the heavenly Jerusalem or something, but you have a catastrophe period. Hmm. The world is destroyed and nothing comes out of it. There's no new world, no new order or anything. That would be the first chapter. Um, It's about the figure of the last man and the last man, which is a figure that still haunts current novels such as Cormac McCarthy's The Road or or current uh, disaster movies. Um, The last man is the position from which humankind can, in a certain way, look back on itself and see, oh, this was us. This was the humans, not a very pretty (laughs) race. And um, But we see what what humanity was worth in a certain way. That's the, the, the glance of the last man looks at humanity from a position of the end. The next chapter um, is about the types of disaster or catastrophe without event that we are facing today. It's a chapter that is dedicated uh, to the different scenarios and also the history of climate change scenarios. We should not believe that climate change is an idea that we only came up with 10 years ago or something. There's a very long story of imagining climate change, also perceiving climate, man-made climate change. Um, fearing climate change. The 19th century, for instance, was terribly afraid of a cooling planet. Now, today, with the research that has been done on the real development of uh, global climate, we can see it's probably not so much a cooling climate, but a warming uh, climate. But this is about the type of of disaster that does not have a big bang, but consists in very slow, invisible, incremental um, steps that we have a very hard time dealing with, not only perceiving these steps, but also dealing with them politically. Mm -hmm. Um, The third chapter is about communities of survival. It's about what happens once or when you are trying 
to survive a catastrophe. Very often catastrophes in the way they are um, presented in fictions, think of... Um, What's that? 2012. Yeah, that, that um, movie, uh, Emmerich movie, 2012. You have a family and you have these ships with the billionaires that are being saved while the rest of the world is perishing in a huge disaster of mega storms and volcanism and continental drift and whatnot. So very often you have a narrative where some survive. And the narrative only follows the survivors and the rest dies off. And I think we have to question this logic. Uh, some are more important than others um, and see how uh, survival is, is in a certain way a figure of speech to deal with problems, again, of um, distributional justice, or inequality, why is it unimportant that certain people die and it's very important that my family members are safe. Yes, if, if this is your family, of course, but in a certain way, I think films like 2012 by Emmerich train us to only look at a specific type of, of survivor and kind of write off other survivors. So, and I believe that there is a profound biopolitical message conveyed by these films that some people, the life of some people is more important than the lives of others. The fourth chapter is dealing uh, with technical safety and technical catastrophes. Technical catastrophes are entirely man-made and in a certain way, when you built a machine or a nuclear plant or an airplane, when you build um, complex technology, you always try to prevent, to build in safety mechanisms that will prevent certain types of disasters. So in a certain way, in complex technology, you try to build in the disaster and its prevention. Now, the trouble is that in many ways, this inbuilt catastrophe nevertheless plays out. And you can see that in many different types of narratives and fictions. I was talking about this uncanny long-term effects about, of certain substances such as um, uh, asbestos. You could talk about genetically manipulated plants or organisms. <laughs> All sorts of technology we we use today, nuclear plants, how safe are they, what happens if one element is disrupted, as we saw in Fukushima, or you have a, a combination of, of um, factors that all of a sudden come together and, and bring forth a, a disaster. Um, how can we, uh, in a certain way, cast these highly complex and abstract technical problems in the form of images and in the form of narratives. What are the narratives that we're trying to tell ourselves about these dangers and how we can prepare for them? Uh, Don DeLillo's White Noise is a brilliant text exactly about that. It's a family that is um, ridden by fears 
of a coming catastrophe, and eventually the catastrophe really does happen, the famous airborne toxic event, and then all of a sudden their teenager's son starts to thrive in this in this chaotic situation has been waiting for the a catastrophe to happen. The fifth chapter, I've been talking about that already a little bit, mm-hmm. um, is about the paradoxes of prediction and prevention and the way this is being um, processed. This problem or this paradoxical uh, um, yeah this ethical paradox, maybe that's the best word, mm-hmm. um, is playing out in certain fictions. I deal with um, Sophocles play uh, Oedipus, uh, King King Oedipus. Mm-hmm. I deal with a text by Kafka, and I deal with these two films, um, uh, Twelve Monkeys and Minority Report, mm-hmm. because they all revolve around the possibility and impossibility to uh, be really secure, to prepare for the future in a way that you can securitize the future, that Mm -hmm. you can prevent any, you know, undesirable catastrophic event. Mm -hmm. And very often that you can see that in Oedipus by preventing, by trying to prevent or preempt the catastrophe, you trigger it mm-hmm. okay um let me ask how you uh h- how did you choose uh the works that you used in this study um, um because i found they had something to say mm-hmm. <laughs> i am uh, the way i work uh i of course, I'm a scholar of literature and cultural history, so I work with a lot of fiction. I sometimes also work with uh, with images, with paintings. Mm-hmm. I like to work with uh, with film. I also work a lot with the history of science, you know, historical scientific materials such as the research being done on the nuclear war, which happened mainly in the 70s and 1980s. Um, and I try to bring fiction and scientific material together and to weave it into one argument. So in a certain way, I use the fiction to develop my point. And I'm not trying to include everything that has ever been written or everything that is from the epoch I'm interested in, but I'm trying to pick out those texts, those films, those narratives, images, metaphors that best highlight the problem I want to show. Mm -hmm. That's the way I, you know, pick out these things. Sometimes I throw out stuff because things are getting too long. But maybe um, the the background idea behind this technique is Mm -hmm. that I believe, um, aside from philosophical abstract arguments, literature, fiction, films, images uh, are immensely intelligent. And in certain ways, it's easier to point out a very complicated problem uh, in the form of a story by telling a story or by painting a 
a painting um, then by you know expounding it abstractly in the form of a of a philosophical argument so I thought uh, these narratives these films have something to say that is best said in a fictional form mm-hmm. and do you, I guess you stick to works that have um, popular appeal or had wide dissemination um, as opposed to Oh, yeah. If you would say Byron's uh, poem, Darkness, has wide dissemination, I'm very happy to hear that. Or Kafka, mm-hmm. or uh, King Oedipus by Sophocles. Mm-hmm. Yes, these are classics. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also want to get these so-called classics, classical texts out of the corner that they're, you know, floating in some heaven of stuff for the very educated. I think they they speak to us. If we look at them, they speak to us into everyday problems that many people are facing. And we have to take them back out of this, you know, um, um, this this realm of, uh, you know, complicated and old stuff that has nothing to say to us anymore. Mm-hmm. Okay. So what, in your research, what did you find that was most enjoyable? To do? What, part, what, what part of it was most enjoyable to do? I don't know. Maybe <laughs> my, my favorite, my favorite item, uh, is 12 Monkeys. Hmm. Um, it's a brilliant film and it, it's in a certain way, uh, beside Sophocles, which I also enjoyed tremendously, but felt that the text is always so much bigger than my my brain will ever <laughs> grasp. Um, I would say uh, Twelve Monkeys is it, first of all it's a very funny film. It's it's really fun to watch. Um, not like Spielberg's Minority Report, which is tragic and a kind of film noir aesthetic aesthetics, um, but. Uh, 12 Monkey is immensely funny and it is in a certain way much more pessimistic about the possibility of preventing a catastrophic future and it involves the the spectator into the blindness of the protagonist. You watch the movie and you overlook the central villain from beginning to the end, only at the end you understand, oh my God, it was this guy. He was there all along. He's, he has like 20 appearances throughout the movie and, but only like as a sideshow and you know, well, what is this, this guy? It's kind of a totally overlooked figure. And then you realize this is him. This is the guy who, you know, spread the deadly virus, blah, blah, blah. Um, and Bruce Willis couldn't do anything about it. Um, so I think this, really nails our relation to the future. We might be trying to prevent uh, a disastrous or just an uncomfortable future, like being poor in our old age. We put aside money. We do this. We do that. And in the end of the day, disaster strikes from a totally different angle. And we didn't look in this direction. And maybe that's that's very personal 
personal. I always feel like no matter what I do, maybe I'm just looking in the wrong direction with all my attempts to securitize my future or the future of other people. Mm-hmm. What, uh, what did you find that was most surprising in your research? Hmm. Uh, surprising. Uh, probably the enormous amount of disaster imagery of disaster fiction. Um, I sometimes found it almost overwhelming and there's a certain repetitiveness about it. You think, oh, okay, you know, disaster is, is a unique event, so you would have many different ways to play it out. Uh, there is a lot of repetition. Mm-hmm. And, um, okay, so you leave that out. But I was surprised uh, by the redundancy of many fictions. It's over and over again, the same stuff. Mm-hmm. I, I just left it out. For readers of my book, they won't notice. <laughs> okay. What was the most difficult issue or question for you to research? Maybe something it took a while to come to conclusion on, or you still haven't fully... Uh, grappled with, I guess. Uh, One thing that took me a while was to figure out in a very concrete manner what exactly happened in the road. When you read the road, it's a fascinating novel. You can also just watch the movie, which is not like the novel. And the novel is better, like always, but Mm -hmm. um, you can watch the movie without, you know, um, getting too bored. I was looking very hard at what I would call the background information the book gives me and try to understand, is this climate change? Probably not. It's really a winter mm-hmm. scenario. What has happened? And it's, it's a relatively precise without ever mentioning what happened. It's a relatively precise, uh, reconstruction of uh, the nuclear winter scenario but without a nuclear strike. Mm-hmm. So in the nuclear winter scenario the idea is that you have by some event uh, that does not need to be necessarily a nuclear strike, you have a lot of aerosol and ashes in the atmosphere in, or in the higher layers of the atmosphere so the sunlight is is being filtered in a way that no photosynthesis can happen anymore so everything dies plants die and animals die and humans die uh, but it's a little bit hard to figure that out and that took me a while and in a certain way, I thought, uh-huh, yes, it's a nuclear winter dis- uh, scenario, but without the nuclear strike. Okay, mm-hmm. that must be it. And um, McCarthy is quite precise and accurate um, in describing the scenario. Mm-hmm. Was there anything in your research that emotionally moved you, either positively or negatively? Oh, yes, uh, uh, almost everything. Um, at the the emotional, uh, um, how do you say, the, the affect I had reading this material was my, my starting point. And I, I've, after the financial crisis, I felt that this stuff was speaking to us in a different way. Um, but 
of course, uh, the road, the relation of the father trying to protect his son from cannibals is insanely moving. And when you read the last paragraph, which is quite uh, enigmatic and you don't really know what it's about, it's about uh, brook trouts. It's it's an image of a brook trout, uh, uh, and it's a very mysterious passage, but it's at the same time very touching in the sense that it talks about a world that has disappeared and cannot be made right again. I think these are the words of uh, Cormac McCarthy, and in a certain way, this image of a world that might disappear or has disappeared already and can never be brought back to life is, of course, something we should think about. I mean, we are heading for a major ecological disaster, mm -hmm. the, the short term of which is the Anthropocene, which is my current research project. Mm -hmm. And maybe in 50 or 80 years, the children of our children will looking at a world that cannot be made right again. And so I find, found these anticipations of worlds, of destroyed worlds, of post-catastrophic uh, worlds, immensely topical, but also immensely touching. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So apart from simply teaching the reader about this subject, what do you hope the book will do? I hope it will um, make people aware of the paradoxes in our relation to the future. It, that it's not just about, hmm, let's get more preventive measures, let's get more police, let's get more technical safety devices, and we'll be fine. Let's get an insurance, and we'll be fine. It's not as easy as that. I want to point out the difficulties and the inbuilt paradoxes in all our endeavors to securitize the future. That's, that's the main goal. So in a certain way, the book offers more questions and problems than solutions. But I think this is important to understand that the solutions we have had in classical modernity may be the, the very devices that are bringing us closer to catastrophic events. Hmm. You know, by, by thinking, oh, we have taken care of the future by getting an insurance. We have taken care of the future by, uh, you know, getting some minor political decision to curb uh, CO2 emissions and stuff like that. Hmm. It's not enough, and it might even just be the wrong step in, in the wrong direction. Hmm. And I think we should, we should think about, um, like, how can we get a 360-degree uh, view of a situation, not only stare at the immediate future, but mm -hmm. think also of futures that might be radically different from what we have today and dangers that might be hidden, invisible, and uh, we could see them, but we're looking in the wrong direction. Mm -hmm. So you're fighting complacency and apathy. In essence yeah in a certain <laughs> way that's that's the point yes yeah. um can you speak to any difficulties you had in finishing the book or getting it published and how you overcame those 
um, getting it published wasn't that hard once the manuscript was there. But like always, once the book is done, you feel like mm -hmm, this is the structure of it. it. It had to be exactly like it had, like it is now. Mm -hmm. But I find it insanely difficult to build the house. I always think of a book <laughs> as as a building, and that maybe the foundations don't fit the roof. Oh my God! Um, so uh, I had a I, I was writing parts of the books uh, of the book in uh, in the United States. I was on a sabbatical, and during the sabbatical, I almost went nuts. Mm. I don't know why. It was something in between the cold war and climate change i was trying to understand what is the difference between say a mid-century idea of catastrophe and our current predicament and somehow this was really difficult to figure out and why does this have nothing to do with um with older ideas of apocalyptic reckoning and all that. Um, I don't know. Maybe I'm just stupid, but I found it very difficult to okay. <laughs> figure it out. Okay, fair enough. Um, <laughs> what's your next writing project? Oh, God, I have two. I already mentioned um, a book on the Anthropocene that I'm currently writing. Mm -hmm. This is rather a purely theoretical book. I'm trying to point out the implications of the term Anthropocene. It's very much related, of course, to the catastrophe project because I, I believe that the Anthropocene is in itself a potentially catastrophic term, but still it leaves open a lot of possibilities for, for activities and insights that in order to thwart potential catastrophe. Um, that's one project. The other project is kind of also an offshoot of the catastrophe book, but it's not catastrophic at all. It's a cultural theory of climate. Um, hmm. When we think of climate today, we always talk about mm, climate change and disaster and it's awful and uh, one day the world, we will be living in a burning world and the poles will, uh, the ice caps at, on the poles will have disappeared and so on. However, what is climate really? What was climate historically? What did the ancient Greeks think climate was? So this is the other book. It's a more scholarly book. It's less topical than the Anthropocene, but there is, it's a trove of super fascinating material. Hmm. Interesting. So we so before we started recording, we talked about uh, where the book can be found. It's on Amazon, or it will be. It's about to be published. Um, yes. And you said you... And, yeah. And if people want to see what else you've worked on, you said you had a faculty page? Yes, I have a faculty, so they can see what I look like. There's a photo. <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> I'm, as, as you said, I'm a professor in the German department of the University of Vienna. Mm -hmm. So if you Google Eva Horn Universität Wien or University of Vienna, you will find my page and then mm -hmm. you can see what else I have been writing. There's a lot of stuff. I apologize for that. There's a lot of stuff in German, <laughs> but 
there's also some in Ivrit and in Hungarian and uh, mm-hmm. but uh, basically you also see what else I'm doing currently. And there's an Academia Edu page where you can see some of my newer stuff, which is on basically on climate. Okay. So that's all the questions I have. Do you have any final thoughts or words? Oh, no, I don't think so. I feel like I've been talking so much. Uh, I hope it's not too repetitive. <laughs> no, no, no. Um, no, I just uh, buy it. Uh, I think it's um, it's not very long, um, and uh, I think it reads well. And you will see maybe the one with the the best selling point of my book is not the the great contents of my book, but you will find a lot of fantastic fiction mention in it that you then should look at directly. Kafka, Sophocles. Beckett, um, fantastical mu- movies. We talked about some of them, mm-hmm. and you find them all in the book. And the book can serve as a as an open door to this this kingdom of great stories. Okay, all right. Well, thank you for speaking with me. Thank you for listening. One of the best ways in which you can provide feedback for this podcast is to rate me on iTunes. Uh, please give me a good rating if you like this. Or uh, feel free to give me a bad rating if you didn't, and I'll use that feedback to hopefully make this a better podcast. You can also follow me on Instagram under Chris Alvarez Sci-Fi, on Facebook under Chris Alvarez WLC, on YouTube under Chris Alvarez WLC, and on Twitter under Chris Alvarez WLC. You can also get more information on my website, chrisalvarez.com. Please remember my name, Chris, does not have an H. So it's C-R-I-S-A-L-V-A-R-E-Z.com. Thanks for listening and keep imagining the future.